do we have to say who we are? Yeah. Um, I'm recording, by the way. I just started. So, um, yeah. So, for those listening, I'm interviewing my Oma and Opa today. And I'm very excited to go into some of their stories and their life. So, feel free to introduce yourselves. My name is Heidi. My maiden name was Bütner. I grew up in Germany. I was born and raised in Germany. I'm Raymond Joseph Streiler, born in Crystal City, Missouri, in the home that my father built that year, 1938. And now it's still owned, it's still in the family? Still in the family. My, my sister, Mary Lou, owns it. When my mom died, we turned it over to her. The boys gave it to her, and then her son is a contractor and a builder, and he built it up, and it's... Uh, twice as big as it was at that time and when we were there all four of us uh, I had three siblings and we all lived in one room and then mom and dad lived in the other room so now there are about six rooms there and uh, quite quite a bit larger now yeah so Omar we were just talking about the war like World War II time frame and what you remember and you said you have hours to talk about um, and you were just starting to say something when you were four years old so what was that? Well, one day, one time when I visited in Germany, my mom and dad, I thought I had a horrible nightmare. So I went downstairs having breakfast, and I said to my mom, gosh, I had this terrible nightmare. And she said, well, what did you dream about? And I said, I had a dream that I saw a lot of corpses laying on the ground, and then somebody took my face, my head, and made me look at all these people, you know, all these dead people that lay in there. And she looked at me and she said, no, she said, that actually happened. And I said, what? She said, yeah. She said, during the war, it was actually at the end of the war, my mom came from the northern part of Germany and most of the time, you know, when while Dad was fighting the war, she and my younger sister, Krista, we went up to northern Germany, you know, to stay with her parents. Mm -hmm. So she said one day there was an announcement that the Americans are coming and we all have to go in the basement and the front door has to be open. So my uncle, who was a World, uh, World War One veteran, he was like a very hard head, and he said, we're not going to open the door for anybody. So we all went down in the basement, and we heard all these you know, footsteps, and then we heard a loud shooting, and one of the American soldiers shot the lock open. So then my mom said, you know, everybody thought, okay, that's going to be the end of us. So we were all very quiet down in the basement, and they heard the footsteps upstairs going back and forth. And after about an hour, everything was quiet. So my uncle went back upstairs, and he saw that uh, there were all these empty jars up on the kitchen counter, and open cans and the like. And so what the soldiers did, they went into my grandma's pantry 
and ate all the stuff that they were canning because in those days, you know, they had all these canned goods. And they filled it up with American sea ration. And my uncle didn't trust it, so he was the one who would just have one little bite of something. And, well, nothing happened to him. Then the next time he tried something else. Anyway, so that was the first of my experience. A couple days later, there was an announcement that all people of the little, well, little city called Warstein, they all have to gather at the market and march out to a place. And that's where, on the ground, were all these corpses. And my mom tried to shield my eyes, you know, with her hand. And a, somebody, a soldier, knocked her hand down and took my face and made me look. And I was around four. So Opa can tell you more about it, what happened then, because I, that was the only thing I remember, you know. Do you remember who, who the corpse, corpses were, like what side it was? Ray will tell you. Well, it was basically where the Germans had killed a lot of the Americans up by Malmody. And uh, the uh, American soldier leadership was ordered to show the Germans so that it wouldn't happen again. So that's what it was up there. My war experience is altogether different. I was born before the war started in 38, and then uh, uh, at the end of the war, I remember celebrating. But during the war, we, it had little effect on us except we were on rations, uh, sugar rations. We couldn't get sugar unless we had stamps. We couldn't get coffee and uh, in other, the U.S. other thing in the United States in Crystal City Missouri and of course all the men were gone because they went off to war so my uncles and my dad were off to war my dad was in the Navy out in the Pacific on a, a destroyer and uh, whenever the war was over in May of 1945 the European war the, the uh, Asian war was still going on until August uh, I remember getting in a 1934 Ford in the boot, and uh, my mom and my aunt were in the front. My aunt was driving, Aunt Helen, and uh, me and my little sister, I guess, were in the back. Uh, I was seven years old at the time, and she would have been uh, five years old, I guess, sitting beside me. And we go back and forth on Main Street and celebrate the end of the war, and that's uh, that's my experience with the war. That's crazy. You guys kind of grew up on the opposite sides of the war. That's right. right? One side on American, yeah. one on Germany. Yeah, that's for sure. And then the other memory I have is we were all, you you know, Kunstler House, right? Yeah. Where my dad grew up and my grandparents. So we were all standing outside and there was a march, all these Jewish people those people that were liberated by the Americans, they walked from, I don't know exactly where, but they had to go through our little village. And I remember those people had like blankets around them. And one person came and walked into the store from my uncle. And well, that was sort of the end of it. 
Later on, I found out that this man had a tiny, like what is it, a harmonica? Or a, a, a harmonica. And he walked into the store and he asked if he could exchange that for bread. So my cousin, Friedel, who was 15 at that time, gave him a bread and the Jewish person insisted that he will keep his harmonica. Years and years later, okay, and they had a store, they had a grocery store. So years and years later, um, one of the sales girls came up to Friedel and he said, Friedel, there is an old man in the store and he wanted to know if, you, if the owners of the store are still you know, owning the store. And he would like to see the owner. So Friedel goes down. There is the man, that Jewish man, that exchanged his harmonica for the bread. And Friedel said, I still have your harmonica. And from that meeting developed a great friendship. And Friedel and his wife were several times in you know, Jerusalem visiting, I think, I can't remember the name, I think Knoblauch or Knop, Knoblauch, anyway. And I didn't they, know there was a friendship that developed out of that. Yes, because just a couple of days ago, I, you know, spoke with Friedel and we were reminiscing about it. And he said, yeah, the, he gave the harmonica to, I don't know, a, a Jewish museum, probably in Munich, a Holocaust museum or something. Yes. So see... Wow. So the kid was 15. Yeah, Friedel was 15. Well, you know Friedel. Yeah, mm -hmm. came back as yeah. an old man. Yeah. It's insane. So those are kind of my memories of the war. Yeah. Um, and then I guess there's, we'll go to the next war. So you were in Vietnam. Um, I'm not going to make you retell the story of why you joined the military or anything, but what I think would be really cool to talk about is how you guys met and get both perspectives on that. So who well, would we like met to start? before Vietnam and uh, it was 19, about 1963. And I was in my BOQ, Bachelor Officer's Quarters in Bad Tulsa, And I was an A-team leader in Special Forces. And uh, I had a roommate at that time. I think it was Wells Cunningham. And uh, there was a rap at the door, and this beautiful blonde came to the door and said she wanted cigarettes. <laughs> I said, well, you, you knocked on the wrong door because we don't smoke cigarettes in here, but uh, we might be able to get some. And then she left. I said, wow, that's the most beautiful girl I've seen since I've been in Bavaria in Germany. <laughs> so I said, I got I to gotta meet that girl. So uh, I ran down the end of the hall to Don Quant's apartment. And I said, Don, give me some cigarettes. I knew he smoked. So he gave me a package of cigarettes and I ran back to the door. Across from me was Dr. Merck. He was a dentist. He was contracted in a German. And uh, he was throwing a party for his uh, staff. And this blonde girl was part of the staff, I assumed. So I opened up, knocked on the door and I said, Dr. Merck, I said, where's that blonde girl that came to my door just a few minutes ago? He said, well, that was probably Heidi. She's back there in the back. So I went back and and I gave her the cigarettes. <laughs> and I, I said, 
I just fell in love at the at that moment. I said, "We got to we got to get together," and she wouldn't date me after that. So I'll turn it back over to her and let her talk a while. Well, Do you remember asking for the cigarettes? Well, my story's a little bit different. At that time, I did smoke a little bit, okay, but it was more like social. And Dr. Mork, I worked for him because I worked as a dental hygienist in Batolds for the American people because they paid better. Plus, I spoke a little English. And so he smoked like a menthol or menthol something, and I smoked Kent in those days. And so I... I said, no, I don't like your cigarettes. And then, he, and then he said, well, let me go down the hall and look because there are all these American guys and I'm pretty sure that one of them smokes. So the, see, this is how I remember it. So then he came back and he said, nope, they're all non-smokers. So then a little while later, Ray and Wells Cunningham came to the door and Ray had a pack of Winston. I still see the red and white little pack and he said where is that girl that smokes so that's how we met and that's how well, that's, i recall that's close, that's, close. <laughs> that's how i recall well maybe it was a little different because it was a i mean this is how i recall it was a party we celebrated and we probably had something to drink you know you probably because, did and so well that's how i remember it well, then she but wouldn't go out with me. Then I had to figure out a way to get her to go out with me. I'd stop by the uh, dental clinic every now and then, and I would try to get in and talk with her and try to get a date. And she wouldn't talk with me. She wouldn't wouldn't uh, allow it. Well, I found out that her dad, who was a prisoner of war of the French, he's a German in the uh, Wehrmacht in World War II, captured by the French. And they let him out in 1949, and he had two more kids, two more boys, so four in the family, of her family. So uh, her dad wouldn't let her go out with an American. I mean, that would have been sacrosanct to do something like that. It would have been crazy. So uh, she was kind of against all odds uh, in, in dating me, but I figured it out. She wanted to go see the Pink Panther in the theater local theater. It was just coming out, Pink Panther. And I said, okay, I'll just go get tickets to the Pink Panther, and then I'll invite her, and she'll have to go. Well, she then, she told her her first lie she ever told. She told her dad she's going to go out with Marilla, her friend, and uh, instead she went out with me. So that was the start. That was our first date. <laughs> yes. That's, that's true? That's, that is true. Yeah. How many times did you go to the, the dental clinic before? A hundred times at least. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like a couple of months or something like that. I, you know, when when you're working like uh, 24 hours a day, which we were, uh, sometimes we'd be gone on uh, maneuvers in parts of Germany and Norway and Finland and uh, Greece. So I wasn't around that much, but whenever I'd have an opportunity I'd go go by there in fact some of the time I was at stationed down in Lindgrees where we eventually uh, got a home down there and lived rented and then uh, part of the other time I was up in Batos so it was back and forth and that was about 10 miles apart and I'd, I'd ride my motorcycle back and forth I had a Triumph uh, motor, motorcycle so or, did 
you, Oma, at any point during... Well, when did you, I guess, start realizing, okay, maybe I do want to go out with this guy? Was it after you saw the Pink Panther? Or, like, did you only go to Pink Panther because of the movie? Or had you kind of been thinking about him at this point? Well, sort of, yes, both yes. ways, yes. But then I also knew, you know, that there are a lot of Americans and they're just looking, you know, for a date and a good time. And at that time, I was also babysitting for the colonel, Colonel mm-hmm. Dietert, at the base, and he had two sons. His wife was German. And so he, I don't know, somehow or another, he must have seen that we went to the movies. So he said, Heidi, what is this? Was you and Lieutenant Stryler? And I said, well, he just, you know, took me to the movies, and afterwards we had a cherry pie at the <laughs> club or something like that. No, we didn't drink. We had a, we had a cherry pie, and he said, "Well, okay." That was about all he said, and oh, maybe a couple of months later, or a couple of weeks later, when I babysit, and then he said, "You know what, Heidi? This guy seems to be okay." He said, "I, you know, if you really like him, I think it'll be okay." You know. It's kind of up to your parents, to your dad. <laughs> so then it was the first date, finally, that we got to go on. And uh, she knew that I had a, a convertible. I had a Carvera convertible. So uh, I didn't know if she wanted to go with me because of my convertible or because of me. You know, that was during that feeling each other out time. So I showed up on my motorcycle. And I think she was about to faint. But I said, get on the back of the motorcycle. And she said, well, how do you do it and all that? So she got on the motorcycle, and we went over to a little lake. And uh, we had an afternoon uh, picnic at the lake. And that was our first date. Do you remember the name of that lake? Because I remember we drove by it one time. Stalawa Vaya. It's on the way to, you know, my brother's, to Benedict Boyan. Yes. It's on the right side. And on the left is... The Blomberg, Blomberg, where you go, the cable car, and then you have like that slide down. Yes. So that's where we had our first date. A picnic so you've been date. there. You drove by there. Yeah. It was See, on the right side as you drive up that See? 492, that highway. It goes yeah. west out of uh, Bad Tolts. Yeah, I remember when we went to the, the cable car. Mm-hmm. You pointed it out. That was kind of cool. That was a long time ago. Okay, so so you get to the lake on a motorcycle. <laughs> throw out you a blanket. Picnic. Throw out a blanket. Have a picnic, and uh, then I got her back. Uh, you know, before dark and all that. So that was our first date. Yeah. So I feel like nowadays, you know, when you go and meet a girl's dad, let's say, or parents, but specifically, oh, that came dad, much later, right? Yeah. That's a I he, feel like he didn't want to meet me at all for yeah, a long time. That's that's what I'm trying to get at. It's I think that was probably three or four months later, finally, at least maybe six months later. And then he finally relented. He said, okay, I'll meet this guy, you know, since she's getting more and more serious about me. So uh, I finally got a chance to sit down and talk with him. And uh, we communicated uh, really great. You know, he was an old Wehrmacht soldier. He was in the band. But uh, we, we just got along great. And uh, I don't know how he felt about it after that, but 
after that, every time we'd get together, uh, we'd have some good conversations. So I he guess, got to like you and trust you. I you guess know. he finally he was gave just. In. Afraid, you know, that here is, you know, his daughter and she'll get hurt and this guy is going to, you know, go back to the States. And then once in those days, like way, well, 55 years ago, if you dated an American and then he left, well, that was the end of you as a young woman. You know, you were kind of shunned. Oh. Yeah. Like if they left without you. Yeah. If, I mean, let's say... Ray would have left to the States and left me, you know, like, okay, bye, Heidi. I had a good time with you and all this. The people, I mean, I grew up in a 2,000 population little village. Everybody knew each other. So then nobody if, else would ever go out with and her so after that. And so nobody would have even yeah. looked at me. I would have been a Ami Shikse. That's what they called those girls. And there were a couple of Ami Shikse. It's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of heavy. Um, no, it's doing good though. I'm I'm adjusting it as you're talking. So, um, so, but he was okay with. So he wasn't okay with you, Opa, dating and then leaving, going back to the states. But how did he feel about you, Oma, going with him back to the states? It was very difficult yeah. for both of my parents because, well, they were. Well, I had to almost swear on the Bible that if I am not treated properly, if I'd be too homesick, if I couldn't just, you know, live in a foreign country, I shouldn't be too proud and let them know and I could come back. Yeah. By that time, your dad was born, Alex, and they said, yeah, you just, you know, don't be too proud. Actually, but I didn't leave until... Later, we'd lived in Lynn Greaves, and then we moved up to Tolts and lived there a while. Then I oh, got orders to go to, to Vietnam. Viet That's right. So in early 66, uh, I left for Vietnam. So she was there with Alex, and you know we had established the, the marriage relationship and okay, yeah. the I finances. Say, I feel like I jumped a, a lot. <laughs> and it, it wasn't like I was just jumping out of town. Yeah. I, I had a mission to do, and I went over and I did it. And then halfway through that, at that time, you go for one year on deployment to Vietnam. And uh, fortunately for us, we were able to get a uh, R&R, which stands for Rest and Recreation. So she met me in Hawaii uh, the first time that I was over in Vietnam. So she was over there in Germany by herself with uh, Alex, your dad. And then uh, she started moving back towards the States and then back to Vietnam. Well, we had a good friend in uh, North Carolina, and uh, that's where she went first with uh, Alex. And that was kind of mm -hmm. a harrowing experience just to get the first time out of country with the baby. How old was Alex then? I don't know, probably a year. A year? A one year old, I guess. A little over a year. So, so you left the deployment and met in Hawaii? Yeah, so I left Vietnam, went to Hawaii, 10 days, I think, maybe 7 to 10 days. And then and he then, went back to Vietnam. No, I went back to Vietnam. And I she, went back to, was it Kentucky? Uh, 
Fort Bragg. I Fort guess. Bragg, Kentucky. And I stayed with Josephine and her little girl, and her husband was in Vietnam as well. Yeah. They were our friends in Germany, but they were, they've been married for several years, and they had a home in Fort Knox in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she wanted me actually, North Carolina. or North Carolina, she wanted me to stay there the whole time Ray was in Vietnam, but I said, no, I'm going to, you know, just come a couple of weeks and stay with you. And then what about Rob? So you obviously had Rob before. Did you know no. about Rob when you guys started dating? No. No? At what point did you learn that Opa had a kid? <laughs> After he was born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that? Oh, I had all kind of mixed feelings. I didn't know. Yeah, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. It was a very trying time. How long were you two dating at this point? About a half a year. Okay. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are she, uh, I was kind of in a a bind, so to speak. But I knew Heidi was was the one. So uh, I told her about it told her the the jam that I was in and uh, she took it uh, quite well and so I paid uh, I signed a contract that I was a father of uh, Rob and I paid uh, child support up until he was 18 and she even helped me with that uh, later on down the line when we were stationed at Fort uh, Knox Kentucky and uh, other and places when you were in Vietnam and when I was in Vietnam she actually I send her the money. The government would send her the money. Uh, not very much. And then we'd take out part of that, and she'd send a check to uh, Rob. So she was responsible for that part while I was in Vietnam. I didn't have time. I didn't have control over any of that. Yeah. So she took care of the finances. And then when I got back from Vietnam, it was like, okay, who's in charge around here, you know? <laughs> Like <laughs> she, she had been doing everything. She did all the checking, all, all the kids, all of that. And I came back and I was used to commanding, you know, many people. And I expected to uh, somebody to do something when I said something. And she said, nope, uh, I'm going to do this. And I said, whoa. No, I said, I'm not your PFC. I'm not your <laughs> private. I'm your wife. <laughs> so how did you kind of divvy up roles then? What? What did you guys agree on? Well, then we agreed on uh, she took certain roles and she took care of the kids and the family and the house. And then I took care of everything outside the house and uh, the finances. And uh, uh, it was easy to divide it up then. Yeah. Yeah, we just sat down and talked about it and worked it out. And it worked. Look, 55 years later. (laughs) (laughs) So it's good to divvy up roles. That's good to know. Yeah. And certain things just kind of fall naturally with, with one person who's been doing it and knows more about it. So she she took care of all those things. Yeah. And then um, how was, I guess, like moving back in after your deployments, what was life like getting adjusted to now kind of being more of a family with Mike and my dad? Because I feel like you weren't maybe didn't live the family life until after a few years of marriage. That's well, true. It was, yeah. 
well, in a way, that, that's true, but in a way it wasn't because when we first got married and moved into the house in Lindgrees, I mean, that was family right there. And, and from then on, for me, that was family. And then Alex came along. She went off to the Munich hospital and uh, had Alex. And the, the day before, we, we only had motorcycle at the time because my car was in for uh, getting the valves taken care of. So that convertible that I had in the Carvera was broken down. So when your dad was born, I had a motorcycle. But I had to get to Munich. I had to get her to Munich to deliver. And uh, we worked that out, too. Wait, so you took her to the hospital <clears throat> on the motorcycle? No, actually, the day before, he was <laughs> on a motorcycle. But the that day, day before I, we went to the movies. I was able to get a uh, car. Wait, was it? Is this when you fell on the motorcycle? Was this the crash? I remember there was a no. crash. Oh, there was a crash that was while we were still dating. That's with so this was, this And was there way was before. a new road being built, you know, from Reichersboyen to Batterts, and there was no traffic on that road as of yet. Okay, because it was not quite finished. And of course, who shows off on the motorcycle? Ray was on the motorcycle, I was in the back, our friend Hans Gross and his wife, they were driving the car and Hans wanted to take a movie of Ray on driving a motorcycle or riding a motorcycle. And he was sitting in the hood. The trunk. In the trunk was the door, was the trunk door, you know, the trunk open. So he was sitting back there filming us. So for some reason, the trunk fell closed and his wife saw that and she hit the brakes. And of course, Ray tried to avoid driving to Hans and we fell down the ditch and I burnt my leg real bad. And ever since I said, I'm done with motorcycles. Oh, that's funny. I thought you were gonna say that you were trying to show off because you were on camera. Of course. <laughs> See, that's why I know when you guys ride your motorcycles, I'm like, well, that's in the family. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was actually riding too close to, because in those days you had that camera, you had to get close and had no audio on it, it was all video. So uh, I was pretty close and uh, Rosemary slammed on the brakes and I couldn't get the brakes uh slammed on as quickly as the car. She, I mean, she really slammed them on. So I knew I had to take my front wheel and hit the bumper in order to continue to help me. To, to, so I put on the brakes front and back, and then I let the wheel go onto the bumper to uh, slow us down and to stop us, which it did. And then and meanwhile, she uh, burnt her, uh, she panicked and put her leg down and on, onto the muffler. We the ditch. On the muffler. <laughs> we we landed in the ditch. Honestly, that's my recollection. We, Mike, do you want to come say something? We Mike landed. Just came down too. We, oh. You are not naked. Um. We landed in the ditch. on Ray's IT465, I believe, and I was too 
short to actually put my legs on the ground the first time I rode it. And of course it's very quick and powerful, especially for a really skinny kid. And I drove too quickly into a uh, ditch or like, you know, a run where the water runs off and makes one of those little one foot little holes. <laughs> and it slammed me so hard that I had the Honda logo on my balls for about a week. <laughs> I just parked, I fell over and just took the position for about 20 minutes and then the next time, <laughs> the same bike, I was jumping a berm with my girlfriend on the back and she, we, I normally made it over the camel jump, but she was afraid and pulled back, turned to the front wheel and pulled the bike oh, down, so God. instead we hit the berm and I dislocated my shoulder. Get out. <laughs> oh, man. Then I never rode a bike again. No. <laughs> no, I'm, for me, then it was... I, then I rode without helmets, jumping the, the dunes out in uh, 29 Palms like a mad dog, so I'm glad I'm still alive. <laughs> SFA. Um. <laughs> it's a crazy family, I'm telling you. Um, Where were we? <laughs> we've been going back and forth now we're I think we ought to get to where you came in motorcycle oh actually there was one other one other area that I personally don't know a lot about that I wanted to ask about and then we'll go there um, your guys' parents I'm curious I mean I kind of live life with certain comments in my head that a parent makes and like such as don't drink and drive like that would be an example of one but yeah. there's thousands of others that kind of like little rules that are implemented in your head that create who you are i was wondering if you have any from your parents and maybe how they've helped shape you yeah well strong influence from my mother uh, because she essentially raised me up until i was 17 I, after uh, high school and then i left and uh, never came back to live there I was back and forth, but uh, she was kind of a saint and uh, very religious, um, made us pray every night, kneel down and pray every night, and uh, very family-oriented. Uh, a lot of our friends would come to our place and play the piano, and we'd sing and have a good time. And uh, my dad died when I was uh, 11 years old, so I don't remember too much about him. He was a disciplinarian, you know, he made sure that I did what I was supposed to do as a young boy and uh, even gave me a Christmas gift. One time we went to the hardware store and it was Christmas and he gave me $5 and that was the most I'd ever seen in my life. And I was able to get a uh, knife for $3 and, I, and I, that's what I remember about that particular Christmas. So I was probably seven or eight years old, I guess, at that time. And then, like I say, he was he was young when he died, 42. So at the time that he was my dad and I was uh, with him, he was a disciplinarian, and then he went off to the war. And after the war, he was pretty uh, sick from the war. Yeah. And then he died, uh, got back from the war in 45, and then he died in 1952. So, so when you say disciplinarian, what type of discipline tactics did he use and did they work? Well, just by him being um, 
raising his voice. Uh, we knew we needed to get in line, so we were afraid of him. Uh, I remember two incidents. One, we were playing baseball out in the front, and we were supposed to be picking uh, apples for the pigs. And uh, we went over, and instead of picking the uh, the rotten apples off the ground, we shook the tree and got the good apples so we could get out of there quickly, my brother and I, and uh, Curly, so so we could get back to the baseball game, which we did. And when my dad looked at those apples and uh, saw what we had done, he came out there with a two-by-four. And he started on Curly first and cracked it across his back. And then when he hit me, the two-by-four actually broke because it was already cracked from hitting Curly. And he kind of hit me at the, at the lower uh, buttocks area. So it didn't hurt that much, but the, but the two-by-four actually broke. So visually, that looked like it was uh, pretty rough. And, and after we got back to playing ball, my dad went in. He got his anger out. Uh, all the other guys, you know, Corky Hicks and Fred Karen and Muggsy Buckner, all the gang, they said, wow, how, how could you handle that? But the other thing I remember, real quick, like my dad was, the uh, uh, first time I uh, uh, got in trouble in school, it was a, a rubber band that I flung across to this nun, and it hit her little vest. They had these big, these starched white, uh, pristine vests. Oh my! Almost dying trying and, to hold it in. And the rubber went <laughs> from on the, mic. the back of the room all the way to the front and landed right there. And she looked down and she knew who it was right away. So she said, "Ray, you stay after uh, class tonight, after school." And I did. And I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade. I was very young. And uh, I'd never had that, uh, never had that before. I never stayed at school, but when I did, everybody was gone. The buses were gone, and that's how I got home on the bus. So, finally got released after about a half hour staying after school, and I walked outside, and there was no bus and no way to get home. So I just started walking. Now, I'm trying to explain why my dad. I visualize him as being a uh, very disciplinarian guy. So meanwhile, at home, uh, mom said, well, Ray didn't get off the bus. What's going on? Where is he? And uh, so she turned to my dad and said, he'll go, go find that boy. So he gets in the car, a truck. He had a truck then. And he heads out to, there are, two, there are actually three ways to get to Crystal City going. And so he picked the, the right way. And I was walking back. And I, meanwhile, I'd walked a mile or two. And I uh, crossed the railroad track. Trussell, which we had done earlier uh, as a group, and I, I got close to home, and all of a sudden I saw that truck coming, and oh, I, and I know. didn't know whether to jump in the ditch or hide or just what to do, so I just stood there. My dad pulled up to me, and, and uh, I, I looked at his face, and his face was kind of, I didn't know if it was anger or smiling or just what it was, but I think deep down inside he was very happy that he saw me. But secondly, he wanted to show an angry face, and he did. So I hopped in the back of the truck and got home, and he didn't say a word, and he said, go get me a switch. So I went down to the cistern, and I went around the corner, and I pulled up a long, big, long <laughs> limb. It wasn't a switch at all. It was a limb. And I drug that around the corner, and Hugo saw that 
and of course I knew what was coming. He's going to take that and whale me with it. <laughs> but when he saw it, he cracked up. He started laughing, and he said, "Get out of here." <laughs> so I got out of that one. But I had the fear of God in me when I knew I'd done something wrong. So he had a heart. <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's your great-grandpa, Hugo. What do you think about, um, I guess, disciplining in a similar way in today's world? Because I know a lot of people who will not spank their kids. But I also think that I am who I am because I was spanked. So what are your thoughts on, I guess, that concept, but today? I would say a, a spanking when you need it. Yeah. I think My Heidi, mom would spank. Heidi ought to talk to about her mom and dad, I think. Yeah. Like the same well, question you asked me. Well, see, my first recollection, well, when I was between seven and eight, when my dad came home, you know, from being a prisoner of war. So I sort of saw him for the first time. And I was at seven or eight years old. Well, yeah, because I was born in 41. He went to war, what, in 40? And he came home in 49. Yeah, but in between, he came home one more time before the war got really bad, you know, on a vacation. And then nine months later, my sister was born. Krista was born in 43. And I mean, I was two at that time. So I don't remember my dad so when I first remember my dad was uh, somebody said Frau Bertner, you have to go to the train station you have to pick up something from the train station and in during the war my grandparents from northern Germany would send packages to my mom you know with food and things like that so I thought, oh, mom is, you know, we get a package from the grandparents. It's going to be great. There's, you know, food, you know. So Krista and I, we looked down the win outside the window. We lived in Kunstfeld's house up on the third floor. And there was my mom and there was a man. She was just, you know, like arm in arm was this man. And I was like, well, who is that's that's not a package. What is that? So mom, they came upstairs. It and was then, her package. And then mom said, this is their papa. He came home from France. Had you seen photos of him at this point? Like, did he look familiar? Mom showed us pictures, but those were just the wedding pictures. And he was in a uniform. So, no, he looked like an old man to me. And he was very sick. Oh, because was. while he was a prisoner of war, he ate a poison mushroom and he was kind of like in a coma for two weeks. And ever since he he had like very bad blood and he had these boils and because of the mushroom. Well, because his blood was so poisoned or I don't know why he I just remember he had a lot of boils on his body all the time. I don't know where it came from, but we figured it came from that poison mushroom. How much longer did he live after that? Dad died when he was 75. Okay. Mm. So I was always more or less afraid of dad. I was like more, um, I was a mama's girl. And my mom said, I even asked her one time when this man leaves us again. And mom said, this is your papa. He's not a stranger. He's your papa. Well, anyway. 
So my dad was kind of strict. Me being the oldest, I always had to set a good example and had to help around the house, had to babysit my two brothers who were eight and nine years younger. And uh, was always told, you know, you don't date. I was not even allowed to date before I was 18. And then I had to be home at 10 o'clock. So dad was pretty strict. And I was not that close with my dad. You know, it just, I think I became closer as the years went on and after I got married and had kids and understood the whole thing, understood that he was at a war and he had, you know, probably, what is it called, PTS and all these things. I don't think he did. I don't think he had PTSD. You don't think he had PTSD? No, he was pretty level-headed. But he had a lot of experiences. I don't think he had P- PTSD, but he uh, had a lot of experiences, and uh, yeah, she misinterpreted that to be PTSD. Well, I'm, I just, he would get angry a lot if we wouldn't do things that he asked us to do. I remember there were sometimes like, we had like a wooden stove, and we had to go down two flights of stairs and get, you know, the wood from the shed. And I remember one time one of those little Holzscheitel flew after my brother because he probably did something that he didn't agree. And my mom was the disciplinarian. And if we didn't behave, all she had to do is take a wooden cook spoon. I still have that wooden (laughs) cook spoon. (laughs) And she put it on the kitchen table. And she said, if you girls don't behave, that spoon is going to dance on your pupil. And sometimes it did. Just one smack on your booty. Ooh. (laughs) Were your brothers closer with your dad because they were younger? Yeah, Krista was. I think Krista was, I would, I'd say sort of his favorite. Yeah. He was really close with Krista. Yeah. Krista was just a little girl, so in my mom and I was a hardhead. My mom said I would in Germany you say you're trotzig. You know, I was a hardhead. So sometimes dad said something I should do, you know, I wouldn't do it because I'm like I just listen to what my mom says cuz you're just my dad. What was the oatmeal story? One day you wouldn't eat oatmeal and then... Oh, because... Well, see, that's what I said, how strict my mom was. Well, we didn't have a lot. So for breakfast, it was either oatmeal or cream of wheat or a a toast. It was jam. And I just got tired of the oatmeal. And I think I wanted either a toast or, you know, (laughs) cream of wheat. And my mom said, if you don't eat the oatmeal, you get nothing. So I didn't eat the oatmeal. I got nothing. I came home for lunch. I don't know how old I was, okay? I don't think it was school age. I don't, I'm not real sure. But anyway, 
for lunch, what was in front of me? Oatmeal. The same oatmeal. Same oatmeal. I didn't eat it. Didn't get anything else. For dinner, what was in front of me? The oatmeal. And I didn't eat it. And she said, you can go to bed. So then, while I was in bed, a little bit later, my dad came and he had like a bread with jam. And he said, here, he called me Hede all the time, which I didn't like either. He called me Hede instead of Heidi. Was, there a re- was that like a nickname? or? I guess it was. He called my sister Stine and he called me Hede. And I just didn't like Hede. I wanted to be Heidi. <laughs> actually, I wanted to be Heide because my mom called me Heide. That's how you actually pronounce my name. Heide. Heide. Mm-hmm. And he called me Hede. And so I think that's when he brought me that bread was jam. I kind of like, oh, this man really does care for me too. So I think that broke the ice then. That moment? I think so. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, then I must have been older than eight. I was probably school age. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My mom was, was so strict. It was like, oh, God. Yeah, she was very strict. That's the oatmeal story. That's true. So that's cool. So you guys kind of bonded <laughs> over by, by going against your mom. <laughs> in a strict way, one. In a in a way, yeah. Her mom probably put her dad up to it anyhow in the first place. Said she you need to go make friends no, with my, her. My dad was very soft. He he was a he was a softy. Oh, he was. Opa was yeah. He was a softy, right? He was an intellectual. Yeah. And a music player. And a musician. He musician. studied music and then he had to go to war, so. Performer, or he'd put on plays. That's actually how he got out of hard labor in the war as a prisoner of war of the French. A French family uh, recognized his. Uh, a baker. Ab- ability to, well, in this case, a baker, mm-hmm. but also to uh, perform. He put on performances for the French and. Uh, and bake for the family as well. It was before they were captured. He was in the band. He was in the in a military band. And what did he play again? He, my dad played saxophone, clarinet, and the violin. I think the violin was his favorite instrument. To do play. you have any recordings of him playing? I think we do, right? He had. He composed a few songs. Like, I think I gave the lyrics to Mike. I don't know if, yeah. And I think Summer even sang one song, right? We have a recording that Summer was singing one of the songs. It's kind of like a lullaby. He composed those, I think, when my older brother was on his way. Peter. Yeah, he was a musician. That'd be cool if we could. To begin with, yeah, that was his. That was his. That was his number one love music did he play ever while you um lived with him he played in a band they had gigs every weekend they played weddings parties see in those days people didn't watch tv that much and in a little village like on friday nights or saturday nights people would go to the pub and there was always like 
you know, either three guys and they would play the tunes, whatever they, you know, most of them were like Bavarian songs and yeah, that's what that did. He would also stage uh, plays in which he would bring his uh, daughter, favorite daughter, Heidi, and and she would be uh, singing or uh, walking across the stage and performing and that uh, was all just in Reichus point you that know was just, in the local village and yeah. that was another source of entertainment uh, on the weekends mm-hmm. do you remember going to those mm-hmm. didn't care for it but i had to do it <laughs> i was never one who would seek out public you know i was always more i think of a shy person probably because the way I was brought up during the war, I could tell that there was people, I could tell that my mom was, people around me were always afraid of something, you know, and when there was an airplane above, they'd all would run in the house, or when they were in the fields, they, you know, just ran back in the house or in a shed out in a field where they, you know, stored the hay. So I grew up is a sense of being in the public. There is a fear, there is a danger out there. And I think it had something to do, I could sense that my, the people around me were, were afraid, you know, because I was, I grew up during the war and then after the war, after the war, nobody had anything. Yeah. Was there ever a story that you told me about that had to do with strawberries? Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Like you got strawberries somewhere? I, I forget the story, but I have this vague memory of that. Well, it was like this. The refugees had like a little plot of, of garden outside of the village. And I had a friend. They were refugees. You know, they came from Sudetenland. Her name was Burgi. And they had like a little plot there and they would grow well, whatever was in season. You know, they started with the herbs and then they had strawberries and then they had berries and then in, in winter they had cabbage. And so, well, I did, I've, so sometimes we went there and Boogie said, oh, let's look, you know, and see what is ripe. And we would, you know, of course have a little taste and then she said, oh, look over here. This is my grandma's or one of her neighbor's yard. And let's eat some of those strawberries. Well, little did we know it was a teacher's plot garden. And we ate some of the strawberries. And I think he saw us. So we got in trouble for eating, you know, his strawberries. I have a strawberry story, too. Do you? When uh, Mary Lou and I, we ran around quite a bit, too, when I wasn't out playing ball with the brothers. And uh, there was a strawberry patch uh, across the field. Uh, The uh, caretaker of the grounds there at the Ursuline Novitiate, uh, that large convent up there uh, close to the Mississippi River, uh, they had a the uh, gardener put in a strawberry patch and he would 
sell the gar- sell the strawberries, and that's how he made a little extra money because they couldn't pay him that much as a gardener. So we went over there, my sister and I, Mary Lou. I, I had a white T-shirt on, and she probably had a white T-shirt on too. So uh, we'd put the strawberry, I'd pull the bottom of the T-shirt up and put all the strawberries in there, and then we'd go eat the strawberries. So after we ate all the strawberries that we could handle, we walked back to the house, and my mother was there to meet us, <laughs> and she said, where have you been? Well, we've been playing in the woods, which was normal. And uh, did you happen to stop by the strawberry patch? <laughs> no. We said, we looked at each other and said, strawberry patch? And was that <laughs> on the way, you know? Didn't, no, we didn't go by the strawberry patch. It was all over my white shirt, you know, just blue, just red all over. And I, I forget what punishment we had on that one, but... Uh, uh, she caught us red-handed on that, so to speak. No pun in, in, intended on that Red-shirted. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, mischievous, Ray. <laughs> so she was mischievous and I was mischievous. In well, a different way. I didn't know. I trusted my friend that those strawberries were from either her grandma or some other, you know, refugees. It was all the refugees that came to Reichersborn. We had probably five or six families they came from the east and they all got a lot you know where they can grow their own vegetables and she said yeah but we did actually i don't think we get in trouble because the teacher um oh my flip phone is ringing sorry Well, we didn't get in trouble because we were honest and, you know, and told him, you know, and he could probably tell by the way our faces, our expression was that we thought it was a family garden and it wasn't. So that's the strawberry story. You also had a teacher discipline you once by hitting your hand for not writing correctly was that right you're supposed to write with your left hand and if they you didn't they'll smack your hand well i don't i vaguely remember we had we had to write in cursive all the time and we had to write without well first in the first couple of you know grades you had like lined paper well actually in first grade we had like What's a shifa? I don't even know. We had like a plate and you had like a chalk and you would write. I mean, that's my first grade. Rauf runter, rauf. A stencil. Und ein Pünktchen oben drauf. I still have that slate. (laughs) It was a black slate and it had a wooden frame around it. And you had a chalk, a piece of white chalk. And it had lines you know, the slate at lines, and you had to write very nicely the, you know, lower cast under the line, Mm -hmm. upper cast over the line, or on the line. And then we graduated to paper. And, well, I guess I didn't do it good enough, so he slapped my hand. (laughs) Imagine if a teacher did that in today's world. And he said, but not. 
I know you can do better. And whoops, he had like a little, like a, not a ruler, but something like a ruler, like a, something that he pointed out all the time. Oh, we didn't like him. He was mean. Okay. Our teacher, Mother Paula, her favorite thing was pull you by the ear. Your teacher would pull you by the ear? Yeah. She had a, a switch. You'd get, you know, the switch as well, but uh, her and favorite By switch, thing, you mean like just a, a she, twig or something? No, it was a ruler. Uh, you know, oh, gotcha. A, a wooden ruler. And uh, when she wouldn't use that, if she didn't have the ruler handy, she would just walk down to where your seat was and grab you by the ear and pull your ear. I mean, really, you know, stand you up. Pull oh, wow. Really hard. So that was her technique. Mother Paula. Well, those were the days. Things, I mean, kids got whipping from the teacher all the time. You had to go in front of the class. Well, I did not have to go in front of the class. He just walked by and, and slammed, you know, kind of hit me. But a lot, most of the guys, if they misbehaved or, you know, did something not proper, they had to come out to the front, hold their hands up, palms up, and they had like, the teacher had a switch and three, four, or five. And if you pulled your hands back, you got even more. Yeah, those were the days. That's crazy to make you guys do that in front of the class. Well, well, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, usually it was just guys. Girls hardly ever had to, you know, because well, we all knew better. We were, everybody in those days were afraid of teachers, afraid of more or less parents, your grandparents, they were all, you know, try to discipline you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now I I have like individual questions kind of back and forth that we, we can do. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay. One thing that I've always thought of is like, obviously war is risky and when you think of the concept of going into war when i think of it i think of high risk but um there's lots of other things in life that have high risk that people do like starting a company is one of them or uh, you know just doing there's a lot of stuff so how did you manage risk like when you went to war obviously i'm sure there were thoughts going in your head like of all the things that could go wrong but you made it out twice do you think that it was lucky or do you think that there are ways that you can navigate risk? I think I was trained properly. I was uh, four years in the army. So I had four years of training, all kinds of schools, ranger school, special forces schools, airborne schools, uh, infantry officer, basic school, basic training school. And uh, the thing about the training in the military is they prepare you for that. So I was an infantry officer and that's probably the highest risk uh, you could take on the battlefield because you're right there up front uh, on the front lines. You're not in the rear, you're not in supply, you're not in personnel, you're not in other aspects of the war. So we trained as infantrymen. We trained in case of something happened. We trained uh, whenever there was a risk factor involved. We evaluated the risk and we basically looked at it from uh, self-assessment. 
and then a situational assessment of what's what's going on and we always had a plan uh, if something happened if you get shot at you had a plan if you uh, stepped on a uh, mine you had a plan if you um, lost your the location of your your buddy you had a plan so basically uh, uh, what goes on in your head is uh, yeah you assess assess the risk but at the same time you have a fear factor up there and you have to deal with the fear factor and by knowing that you have a plan there's less risk and less fear and uh, when the situation comes up you never know what it's going to be because it's always a surprise in combat and when it comes up you have that feeling inside of you with confidence that you know what you're going to do so uh, that's the best way i can answer that when you're in combat are you because i i think mike tyson said this but everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face yeah um that's so a good point when, when you're in combat are you trying to think like what is the plan or are you purely kind of reacting to what's you react going on based upon your training that's an excellent question and what you do basically is you have to fall back on that training if you haven't had the training and if you haven't had the planning in the past you have nothing to fall back so upon. does the training come out of you subconsciously then or are you trying well, to think of the training inside of you is you go to the uh, fight or flight syndrome so it hits your uh, the emotion hits you fight or flight you have to decide if you're going to fight or if you're going to flight and uh, we've learned over thousands and thousands of years how to protect yourself how to survive and how to, you know if you throw your hand on top of a hot skillet uh, you'll protect yourself your body will protect itself it immediately throws up a protection and it says get off of there if you're in a battle and the, the firefight starts coming at you, you know to protect yourself. Uh, the body itself will do that. Uh, if you're in a close-in hand-to-hand combat situation, first thing you do is your hand will go up and protect yourself from that evil. Whether it's a dog coming at you to bite or whether it's, it's a man coming at you with a, with a, with a, a bayonet and a knife. Uh, you, you throw up your hands your eyes get focused. This is all called something called uh, psychophobia, which your na- eyes will narrow and focus on whatever that enemy is. And the blood will go out to your extremities, allowing you that extra firepower to uh, take on uh, the enemy. So you get trained. You know what you're going to be confronted with, and you just face it. You just deal with it. And then how do you navigate that fear factor like let's say you're going into something that you know you have to do you don't have a choice but you're terrified of it how do you prepare yourself mentally for that well that's a matter of controlling the fear factor uh you you do it you know you're going to do it you know you have to do it and you do it so then it's a matter of just controlling the fear factor and how do you control it do you you try to not think about it or well, you, uh, you think about it. You actually address the fear. It comes into the amygdala, which is the basic uh, reptilian part of the brain, and it's actually an action. So it stays there until you do something about it. So you ask the question, what do you do about it? You recognize it's fear. You recognize what it is that's causing the fear, and then you decide what you're going to do about it. If you don't go through that process, 
the fear will take you down and it, deeper and deeper into the fear factor and it'll reside in there because you keep until you get it out or until you address it. it yeah that's interesting it's kind of like mindfulness so in a way it is addressing yeah. some emotion figuring out how to deal with it yeah. instead of just hiding it i think because some people will things. allow that to stay in there yeah and it becomes part of them and if they don't address it and don't get it out it's uh it'll be just be part of them and anytime something happens similar to that uh bingo there it goes again it just goes right back to it's it's in there you've experienced it anytime you have that experience it's in there and it's going to stay in there until you do something about it and it'll come out in the form of nightmares it'll come out in the form of another situation you get close to that and whenever you get close to that it reminds you of it and inside your brain in the amygdala bingo there it is again you have to deal with it so back to your original question what do you do when you walk into a fear situation you just deal with it you recognize what it is and then you take it on head on interesting yeah that's good i'm reading my notes here um okay so next question is um yeah so what is your your thoughts on kind of continuous learning because God, Mike. <laughs> that was fear. See, now you know there's no, no real danger, and then you laugh about it. Life is scary, and then you laugh about it. Because uh, you retired, and I've always known you as, well, I, I've always seen you read books, and when I was a kid, we would take community college classes together, and you're still taking community college classes together, or by yourself, and I remember even, I think it was last year, you were taking a coding class, and you were always our go-to for technology help. Like when I was getting my first computer and we had a question, it was always, hey, call Opa. Uh, why are you so adamant about learning? What is your thoughts on continuous learning? Why don't you just stop and relax? <laughs> and do some yard work. <laughs> and do some yard do work. Do some honeydews. <laughs> do honeydews. I do it to avoid the honeydews. Uh, I enjoy staying up with uh, the future of education and as a matter of fact I uh, somehow or another I got into that when I started my company education 2020 I got invited to talk about the US education system when I was over in uh, China and Asia uh, Vietnam and uh, because they had a different education system over there and so that's the first thing they would ask about, you know, what's, what's our system? And of course, the Vietnamese, for example, they went through uh, a Japanese education system and then a French education system and then a United States of America education system and now a communist education, education system. So I had to sort all of that out in my head and explain where they were and where we were and the future of education. So I think that turning uh, that epiphany I had was probably in the mid 90s maybe towards uh, 1997 sometime in there when I was just getting up and running with my company and uh, that happened to be a hot issue I was always asked that question and then that's why we came up with uh, two-way video conferencing systems and uh, at one time I was uh, involved in something. I even started up a company called Global Technology 
And I got uh, an expert over in uh, Escondido, uh, Jim Lennox. We started up a company. And uh, one thing, this was right at the end of the dot-com era, but we still had the dot-com mentality where all you had to do is put together a package and an idea and a professor, and uh, you could go get all kinds of uh, angel uh, investment money. And that's exactly what we did. Our idea was to talk to the computer and let the computer talk back to you. Now, that sounds simple today. I mean, it happens all the time. In other words, it was an early uh, Siri or uh, uh, what's the other one? Le Alexia. Hey, Alexa, yeah. Uh, it was one of those, but we were a little bit too far ahead of ourselves. So we went down here to, well, we flew up to um, up where um, Bill Gates is uh, on that Mercer Island in, in uh, Seattle. And we briefed somebody up there, went to his home, rich home. He had a lot of money and he was looking, he was an angel investor and we gave him our pitch and uh, he was about ready to do it. And then we also went down here to San Diego to another angel investor and uh, living in the same house that um, a very famous guy down there in San Diego. Uh, we look out over the Bay of San Diego and uh, uh, the guy invited us to give a pitch. So I was the professor, I was, I was the brains of the outfit, believe it or not. And then Jim Lennox was the technician guy. And uh, we were saying, okay, now look at this computer here. And we had it rigged so that when we talked to the computer, it would answer back, but it was all pre-programmed. So, We'd uh, turn on the computer, and this beautiful girl would come up, and she would be behind the bar. And uh, we'd say, uh, hello, my name is uh, Jim Lennox, and uh, what are you offering today? And she said, well, what, what would you like to drink? That's what she would say on the computer. And this guy watching this uh, demonstration we had, he was thinking all along that it, the computer was actually responding to us. That's the way we set it up. And, and that's the way we'd go and give our pitch. And we say, now, actually, this was set up ahead of time. At the end, we'd tell them this. And that's what we intend to do. So we were working with Intel. They had a, a little uh, two-way uh, program going where you could talk to the computer and it would talk back. But the problem we had was uh, dialect. And the dialect was uh, down in Mississippi, they would say it one way. Up in New York, they'd say it another way. Western Arizona, this, that, another. So we realized how complicated that had to be. And we just didn't have the, um, the back, the hard drive to cover all of that at that time. We had very simple uh, machinery. We could see ahead of time what would happen, but we did not have the tools to do it. And that's what we would go and get our uh, angel investment about. And uh, we were not successful for two reasons. Number one, it was the end of the dot-com series, so people were not buying everything. And uh, secondly, we didn't have enough for long uh, where we could uh, compete with the other uh, invest uh, people who were looking for investment at the time. Yeah, timing is key with those sorts of things. There's lots yeah. of technologies like, uh, like Uber and Lyft. There was one kind of, I think in the early 2000s, maybe late 1900s, where um, same concept, but the market wasn't ready for it and they didn't execute it. And uh, then now you have Uber and Lyft that work. So I think it was a good idea, maybe bad timing, maybe the market wasn't ready, maybe. Um, 
I think if we had been five or ten years earlier, we'd still be in the dot-com era. Yeah. And uh, we would have gotten the money. And if we had had the money, we could have made it happen Yeah. before somebody else did. And then, of course... Uh, well, that's funny. I was going to say you guys were too early. We were just too early on, <laughs> on that one. And that's why I set up a separate company. I, I set up this uh, global technology company. And I stayed with my, my main money-making bag, uh, which was Education, education 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so this next question is kind of directed at both of you. So I'll have Omar start. Um, and at some point, the battery is getting low on this recorder. So if it dies, we can um, switch it out. But there may be a break in the audio. Um, what would you... Like, I guess if you were starting the world today with the knowledge you have now, what would you do? What advice would you give to someone? And this could be super broad about anything. Well, you got me startled about this. I can't think of anything right now. Nothing. What do you tell Milo? Or what do you want Milo to know? Milo's our little cousin. My little cousin, you're great. Well, I would say that for me, the most important thing is, you know, is school and education. Read a lot. Learn different languages. That's what I, I mean, that's right now what pops in my mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree with that, that she reads a lot and and she's excellent in, in the language skills. Um. And uh, that would be an ideal, uh, that would be ideal for the future. Number one, on the reading part of it, uh, you you would uh, be able to learn on your own. You wouldn't have to rely upon teachers. And on the language part of it, I think we definitely need, and matter of fact, I recommended to you and Lexi when you went to China to learn the Chinese language. But uh, I know how difficult it is, you know. And uh, but I but today, if I would look look ahead and say, what would I recommend my great grandkids to do and learn? Uh, I would say the same thing: learn a second language, because you don't really know your own language or yourself until you re- really understand a second language. And uh, this great uh, education guy out of Notre Dame said that, uh, Father Hirschberg, I think it was. Uh, and Heidi has experienced that. By knowing a second language, she knows quite a bit more than than the normal person would know about uh, our language and her language as well. Well, that was actually my dad. He encouraged us to read all the time. He said, you know, he... He didn't mind if we stayed up a little bit later. We had to do our homework first. And then, of course, help mom in the kitchen and learn how to cook and sew and all these things that good German girls did 50, 60 years ago. And, yeah, he encouraged us to read. And he was the one who encouraged us, my sister and myself, to learn English because when we went to school, even when we went to high school, to learn a foreign language was 
voluntarily. And my dad said, you know, I think you girls should learn English. So we did. We had a private tutor for about a year. And then that tutor encouraged me to babysit for the Americans, which was easy because we only lived four miles away. And so the word spread that there are two girls that speak, you know, English. And, well, usually the mom would come and pick us up or pick me up, and I would every weekend babysit little Sean and Scott, and I would read those little golden books. And if I pronounced something wrong, I said they should tell me how to pronounce it. That helped. And when I came to the States, your dad was just a little babe. And the first thing, we were still living in a kind of like a guest house because we had to wait for housing. The first thing Ray did, he bought a TV. <laughs> and I was like, and he said, yep, every time Alex takes a nap, why don't you, you know, watch TV and learn English? Because what we learned in Germany was the British English. That's what people say. If you watch TV yeah, in so a different I, language, that's the yeah. best way to learn it. So I came to the States, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. My English, I don't understand anybody. Wait, this is also, I guess, another question that I have is, like, when you guys first met, how did you communicate? What language? Was it German, English? English. or Was it kind of rough communication? Well. I spoke English. You spoke well at that time? Yeah, because I worked, I at that time, I've been working in the dental clinic for about two years just for Americans. So ah. I had English every day. Okay. I would write reports. In those days, there were no computers. So you had to, at the end of the day, each report for the patient, you know, you had to write it out. And also, you know, if I did mispronounced a word, you know, I asked the dentist. Yeah. I worked for an American, for two American dentists and a German guy, Dr. Mark. And I would say, if I, you know, pronounce a word wrong, please correct me. I don't feel bad. I just, you know, want to learn. So that's when I learned a little bit the English, the American English, but coming to the States and I was like, well, these people over here speak totally different than... And you got the, all the accents and... Well, I, you know what? I spoke kind of like Rob. Rob like, speaks e Like the proper English. The, the proper English. Yeah. And then I pick up, you know, I've been living over here now, what, 40 years? So I just picked up here and there. Now you bit. got the SoCal slang. <laughs> Still, there are some... <laughs> Words I have problem with the th and you know. Uh, anyway, so I have two more questions and then we can wrap this up. I know it's getting late. Uh, first question is, how do um, like you've you're always like very disciplined and to this day you work out all the time. You don't drink. You don't smoke. Um, curious about your thoughts on the importance of discipline and how to maintain it consistently. Cause I think really discipline is about consistency. You know, you could be very disciplined for a week and then give it up and doesn't have much of an impact, but 
um, how do you maintain so disciplined at this stage in your life? Well, I'd have to define the word discipline because what you inferred it to mean is that no smoking, no drinking, and working out and taking care of my health and that. Uh, basically, I do that because I want to be uh, feeling good, feeling healthy, uh, and I know what it takes to do that. I've been through these periods of my life where I just worked out insatiably, you know, four, eight hours a day uh, playing handball, racquetball, uh, going two hours at a time, and then two hours at a time, and then two hours at a time. So uh, I feel at this point in life that I've done enough that I can enjoy my, my old age. After all, I am an octogenarian. 81 years old, soon to be 82. And <laughs> so I'm getting up there. So I know at this point in time, it's better not to drink, not to smoke, not to uh, eat the wrong foods, not to not work out. Almost laughing. Why is she and laughing? Because Ray's favorite food is cake and ice cream. <laughs> she knows I have a soft spot for sweets and of course that brings on uh obesity and diabetes so i have to keep a, a close eye on on that as well and uh, i don't know it's kind of it's kind of a funny question in a way but well, discipline I, it basically is i feel comfortable in a routine and my routine every day is basically set uh, even during this uh, virus uh, and heidi is forgiving on allowing me to do what I want to do when I want to do it and feed me properly and take care of me. I don't know what I would do without her during this period. Uh, I'd probably be driving off of a cliff someplace. <laughs> yeah, and I think I asked that because I guess my view of discipline for myself has always been, or where I struggle with discipline is in the working out consistently. Um, I've, I think been pretty disciplined academically, but when it comes to me working out, I know that's an area where I lack. So I think what I'm trying to get from that question is, are there things that I could keep in mind moving forward that I can keep in, like I said, keep in mind that'll help me stay physically healthy throughout my entire life. Cause I don't want to be the guy that just works out in his youth. And then let me, uh, that's a better question and more in depth question. And I want to answer that. And uh, basically, I'll answer it this way. In the military, of course, there's no question about it. You're going to work out every day uh, some, somehow or some way. It's just built into the, to the program. So after military, I had to force myself to uh, work out. And that was more uh, in sports. It was easy to get involved in, I hate to say golf, but uh, I will and uh, other, uh, well, right after, when I was working with the Institute for Professional Development, it was uh, uh, handball and racquetball, which is a good workout. You go two hours of that, and that's, that's a good workout. But I had a lax period in there, and then I met this young guy who's actually about 10 years younger than me, and he looks like he's 20 years younger than me, 
And I said, well, what, what is it that you do? And he said, well, I, I work out every day. I, I walk, I run every day, at least five miles every day. Oh, wow. Sam. And, and he's, oh. and he's, he's uh, when I visited Sam, he would run in a house. He, he would run from here back to there, and then he'd run back. I mean, he was just, he's, he's just uh, got this built into him. And I asked him about that. The same question you asked me. How do you actually build that into the, to the system, discipline, and the framework? And basically, he said, uh, you just do it every day. And he said, here's what he said. He said, it's easy not to do it, but it's just as easy to do it. And, and I said, okay, Sam, if you do it, and you look so good and handsome and all that stuff at your, your age, I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. And if I ever fall down on it, you remind me, Sam. So he's, he's my guiding light. And uh, so every, every Thursday night, every week, uh, we have a Skype. He's up in uh, Washington, the state of Washington, in Spokane. And uh, the first thing he says is, did you run today? Well, he meant, did I walk today? And, and I actually, I do. I hate to even tell you what, how little it is. It doesn't even... It pales in comparison to what you just did on Saturday, but uh, every day I, I walk a mile and a half and uh, to two miles. And I figure for me, that's, that's about right for me at this age. He's referencing the ultramarathon, if you don't know. Um, also, <laughs> I, I don't, I, you've told this story many times in the book and everything, but I guess if someone's listening and they don't know who Sam is, can you give like a 30-second background on how you met Sam? Sam was uh, my interpreter in Tanrai in uh, March of 1966. Now, he tells a story all different than I do, but uh, he was an excellent interpreter and translator. And so he could speak uh, the Coho language of the mountain yards that we were advising, the uh, Coho sect of the mountain yards. And he could speak a couple of other languages in the Coho sect. And he could speak French and he could speak English. And he was just very adamant and diligent about learning English. He, he, just, he just felt uh, we were heroes. All the Americans that he knew, me and my staff, my, my team, he just adored us. And he, he'd follow us along and he'd write notes and he'd, try to, and he'd try to talk the way we would talk. And that's the way he would... Uh, reinforce the English that he had learned. He learned it in a school uh, where the teacher actually was an American. So if, you know, you traveled Asia and you've talked to people over there in English where they say they, they speak English and they've learned it from a Chinese, it just hmm. doesn't sound right. Yeah. But if they learn it from an American or an Englishman or an Australian or an English-speaking person, they, uh, they, they, get, they get it right, and you can understand them well. So back to the story. He was my interpreter. I hired him, and uh, he did a great job. But uh, my boss, now he doesn't, he doesn't know this. Uh, Sam doesn't know this. My boss said, Ray, send me the best interpreter you have. We need a good interpreter up here. Now, what are you going to do if you're the A-team commander? You're a captain. That guy's a major. And, of course, me, I'm an officer. I'm trained, you know, 
ethics above everything, he wants me to send my best interpreter. Well, I do. Now, most people wouldn't do that. They would keep their best interpreter and send their second best interpreter. But anyhow, I sent Sam up. And uh, he was a young guy at the time. He was 20 years old. And I was an old man at the time. I was like 24 years old or something like that. They called me the old man. I mean, that was just a, a fun thing to do for the commander. Although these guys were all older than me, they still called me the old man. <laughs> Go wrap your head around that one. So uh, Sam was 20 years old. I said, Sam, you got to go. And then I sent him up to Major Gillette. And, and he was uh, very disappointed. And Bud Gillette. Right. Yeah, he looks at it altogether different. He wanted to stay there where he was, and he liked what he was doing. And he was actually close to home there. He, he His family lived in Bammy to it, so that was not really a big consideration. Mm -hmm. So he was happy, though. So he so got I sent, sent away. Him, I sent him away. That, that, that was it. Now, no, that's not it. <laughs> then the well, replacement. Got shot. Well, his, his replacement got shot in the head. And, uh, and Sam, Sam feels that you I, saved his I life. knew all that ahead of time, and I protected him. And Sam feels I saved right. his life and, and what have you. He's, he's actually doing a keynote speech about that now. And uh, it'll be out soon. He's working with a coach. And so every now and then we'll talk about it. And then he'll practice a part of it, uh, you know, and see if it sounds right to me when, every week when we talk. And he's going to put it all together into a keynote speech, you know, about a half hour to 45 minute speech. And then he'll be available up in the Northwest or any place if anybody wants to uh, hear his story. And he can talk about anything. He's He's a natural born speaker and an author yeah he's really good well it's crazy that you guys discipline, are discipline i think yeah the way he i think that's you know discipline that's also sam oh yeah because gosh i would not have all that discipline to <laughs> undertake all the things that he does and keep on it and keep on it and similar to it's really something else to um Friar, he is also, you guys are still friends today after the war. I mean, not a similar story on how you guys met, but it's cool that you guys were, I guess, in combat in your 20s, and now you're still friends today. With Sam, you mean? Yeah, I was saying that the story where the guy walked in, got the bread, then they we're still yeah, friends the, later oh, on. The Jewish, yeah. Yeah. the Jewish person. Yes. It, it, a little, little different, but um, well, it's, it's sort just cool. Of, it's similar. Similar. You know? Friedel. Yeah, Friedel. Yeah, Friedel. Friedel and Freya. Freya yeah. is, is the wife. That's right. You know? But I mean, if you, cons if you think, you know, this Jewish person should actually hate the Germans, even though Friedel gave him the bread. Yeah. But no... Friedel said it is, those are such wonderful people. They treat, when they go to Jerusalem or Israel, he said, we've been there at least five times. They were, we were their guests and they had them, you know, in their house as guests. He said, they treat us as if we had, if we were royalty, wow. so to say. And he said, you know, sometimes, and he said, we never 
touch and speak about the Holocaust. We just talk about family, the future, the grandchildren, the past is the past. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, not forgotten, but we don't talk about it. And with Sam, it's the same thing. You know, Sam was looking for Ray. He found Ray. And we spent every January a week in Las Vegas together, Sam and his wife, and Heidi and Ray, and we have a good time. You didn't ask the question I thought you were going to ask, and that is what, what keeps you together all these years? And I, I look back over Sam, and I say, well, how is that possible that we can have a weekly conversation and go on for an hour every week? And the way it started out was, okay, he found me. He came down to visit me. And when he did, we talked about our togetherness at Tan Rai. And uh, so that lasted for a while. And he would tell stories about his uh, venture after I left. And he, he, he was there under the communist rule. And then he escaped. He was put in prison and escape and he had a pretty good story going and he could tell that story and he could tell it with a lot of emotion and I recognized that and I said Sam you need to write this down and he said what write it down in a second language I said yeah just write it down just the way you told it to me just now write it down exactly like and he did and he wrote the book so I published that book for him I was in the you know private publishing situation at the time I published some of my own books. And uh, then he went to a professional outfit, a religious publishing company. <coughs> and he uh, had it published again under them. And by that time, we had gone through all the editing and all, we got other people to edit it and it, it looked pretty good. And it turned out to be a very successful book. And then he said, well, we should probably make a, a movie out of it. So, now, the reason I'm telling you this is to tell you where our commonality connected. You know, what? at that time I was interested in making a movie then, all of a sudden. And uh, he wanted to make a movie out of his book. So that kept the conversation going and uh, kept the friendship going. And then someplace along that continuum, we decided to have a uh, weekly get-together Skype. Because he would come, he'd come down and visit for a week or two and then go back stay right here in the house. And uh, he would do the cooking for Heidi if she'd let him in the kitchen, teach her how to do uh, Vietnamese cooking, and then buy up all these Vietnamese things. And, and I won't tell you the rest of that. And, uh, and so uh, he would come to visit oft as often as he could. And, and we would, I would go up there every now and then. And um, at that time also, we had another Vietnamese, uh, Viet or a, a veteran, a special forces guy, Ned McGonigal. So he became part of that triangle. So that carried the interest for that period. Uh, and then uh, I said, Sam, now that you wrote the book, you'll be asked to go around and talk about the book. So go join Toastmasters. I told him to join Toastmasters seven years ago. Uh. And uh, he did. And he loved it. That was just him. I mean, he, he joined two clubs. Two Toastmasters Club. Now he's in two Toastmasters Club. So that was our interest then, because I could see him. And you joined Toastmasters. 
And then he finally talked me into joining. He said, Ray, you got to join Toastmasters. And I said, okay, well, so then I joined. So you've always found commonalities in So then that was the commonality doing. right there, Toastmasters. And I'd say, i I got to give a speech next week, and uh, here's, an ex- here's an experience I had. What do you think? How should I give a speech? And he could make up the speech right on the spot. You know, he was very clever. So that's what kept our friendship going up till now, and that's what keeps it going today. And then the family's got, you know, I, I met his whole family, and uh, Heidi got involved and met most of the family over here at a soccer game and so on. So that's that's the essence of the friendship. Uh, you know, you ask, how can two guys get together after, I don't know, 50 years or something like that, whatever it was. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Well, that's been many years. I don't know. At least 40. 40 years? From 1966 till now. You know, but I mean, the time in between where he lived his life, you know, and we were over here, and then he found you because he was always searching for Ray to thank yeah, you. Yeah, how did he find you? Well, of course, that was before the Internet and everything. So he, uh, a special forces guy walked into the furniture store that he owns up there and runs and he got to know this guy miller and uh uh they got talking back and forth and sam said he's always been looking for me <coughs> so miller said well i know who to uh contact he, uh, miller said i don't know him but i know somebody to contact so uh he put sam in touch with uh our unofficial historian Steve, uh, Steve Sherman down in Texas. And Steve Sherman called me and said, Ray, there's this guy, Sam Lee and Lee. He wants to get in t- touch with you. Do you want to talk with him? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'll talk with him. And so I talked with Sam, and he called back when Heidi and I were driving down to San Diego one day. So I didn't know who he was at the time. I'd forgotten, you know. And... Uh, so I came home and I looked in my diary and I had two pictures of Sam in the diary. <coughs> Turned out to be the only two pictures that he has prior to 1979 when he escaped from Vietnam because everything else was destroyed by the communists. So those two pictures are one, he's in a boat when we were out on a uh, civil affairs operation. Uh, well, he was in the boat, small boat. And then the other one was... Uh, uh, just a picture of him with, with his uh, cowboy outfit on, we called it. We gave him a tiger suit, just like we had, and then a, a cowboy hat, like an F&M wool crusher, crusher uh, cowboy hat. And he had it tilted on one side, you know, it looked like an Australian. So I had those two pictures of him. And once I saw the pictures in my, li- my diary, oh, yeah, I, re- I remember that guy. I kicked him out of camp <laughs> years ago. And uh, so he said, i got to come down and see you. So, he, you know, it was one of these things that he was flying down and uh, I was going to pick him up at the airport. He said, I'll be wearing, you know, a blue shirt and black uh, khaki pants. And, uh, he, and of course, by that time, I, I kind of remembered the, those two pictures I had. So I kind of knew what he would look like. And that was about 15 years ago, I guess, or, yeah, 15 years ago. 
And it was before, I mean, now I just go online and say, look up Sam Lee and Lee, and I'd, I'd know what he looked like and everything. So he came out of the airplane, and there he was. Hey, he looked like a young kid then, you know, 20 years younger than me. But he was actually only 10 years younger. <coughs> so we got together, and we talked, and then uh, we kind of got together after that. Started a whole new friendship. <laughs> yeah, a whole new friendship, yeah. Um, my last question is pretty irrelevant to the other questions I've asked, but it's something that I've been thinking about lately, so I was wondering if you guys had comments on it. Um, how has the perception of America changed in your lifetime? And by that, I mean, my theory is that America used to be perceived by the world as this power and like everyone looks up to it, but I think maybe that's changed in today's world. And uh, I was just wondering how that's changed and maybe if we're moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. Well, I have to say America has really changed from the time when I first came 40 years ago until now. We were well-respected. Everybody thought, you know, America is this great country, great leadership and everything. And it has really shifted. When I go back to Germany now and they say, well, what do you think about America? And they have very negative, um, I don't know how should I put this, but they don't think that America is this great country anymore. They kind of look down a little bit. And they, I would say they lost the respect, if that's the right word. What time frame do you think that started happening? I don't know, but it's like when I go over there, then they are always su they are surprised that I still live here, that I don't want to come back to Germany, you know. And, well, I try to defend no matter what president we have. I said, well, you know, this is the country that I live now. I'm an American, which most of my German friends, they don't kind of like that, that I became an American citizen. But to me, I'm married. I have children here and grandchildren, and this is my home. And so I felt like that's the right thing to do, become an American citizen. Yes, America is not in the eyes of the Germans what it used to be like maybe even 20 years ago. Yeah, I think a lot has happened in the last 20 years. Yeah. So I, I have friends in college who <clears throat> I think about I would 20 talk years politics ago. with and they would say they weren't too proud to be American and I would say how can you even say that? But I feel like that's a pretty recent thing i don't know well my view of how america has changed uh, from 
the time I saw it, I had the benefit of uh, going back uh, to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. <clears throat> and I have seen the changes, obviously. Uh, right after the war, of course, it was a rebuilding and helping two other countries, Germany and Japan, rebuild and uh, uh, Taiwan and uh, and South uh, and South Korea. So we the way it was working here was uh, all the men were respected that came back from the war, and so much so that they were giving. Uh, money for their house and help uh, and their education and we really rebuilt america uh, academically and uh, physically at, uh, during the 40s and 50s and then the 60s came along and it was a paradigm shift in the 60s because now all of a sudden you had the young people who were what you call war babies uh, coming alive and uh, protesting and uh, protesting the war in vietnam and uh, trying to trying to make it out on their own so that was a big shift then a big paradigm shift and a more or less a a, a starting of a separation and a polar opposites in the united states and we're in the academic uh, area uh, a lot of uh, uh, people migrated towards there uh, some of those that uh, did not go to vietnam and uh, in Hollywood, certain ones migrated there. And all of a sudden, now we're building up these little uh, political uh, units around the world, around the uh, United States. That's what we're talking about, basically. <clears throat> and then in the uh, 70s, 80s, 70s, it was like people coming back from Vietnam. And uh, as an Army guy, an Army officer, I was responsible for people in, in Europe at the time, and there were open gunfights, and there were drugs, and uh, it was kind of a rough time to be a commander over there because you had a bunch of willy-nilly soldiers that uh, had come back from Vietnam and didn't, didn't, have a, didn't know what they were going to do, didn't know if they were going to get out of the Army or stay in. Um, and uh, we, I was over in Germany... Uh, after the Command and General Staff College, Heidi and I went back to Germany and the kids, and uh, we stayed there for a while. And when I came back, my sister, I could not believe this, my sister, who I thought was a saint, there she was doing the uh, frug and uh, uh, the twist and, and, and uh, had a short skirt on, a mini skirt. You know, every time she'd cough, you kind of look underneath there. And uh, I, I could not believe you know, that we had changed, uh, the, the paradigm shift had changed so much. But that was going on in my mind because I was used to a more of a conservative Germany because that's where I, I was in Germany and England, but much more conservative. So then in the 90s, and uh, I, was, I was working, so I was able to get all around the United States and uh, not much going on, not much of a change. Uh, we were still competing. <coughs> in the rest of the world and then strangely enough I started going about the time you were born in 98 I started taking my Chinese uh, trips <coughs> and what I saw then was China uh, was just uh, growing leaps and bounds they came in the World Trade Organization 
and they signed all the contracts to, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do this, but they never did. They just stole all of our ideas. And, and China suddenly on a world stage became much more influential economically than the United States. And at that time, the United States then started losing face around the world economically. And we had depressions. And uh, therefore, uh, the United States was not this big almighty United States that it used to be. Uh, now we're talking in the, in the uh, 90s and the 2000, early 2000, 2000 to 2010. And uh, during that period of time, we had different kind of leadership and we had different uh, uh, agreements around the world. And at the same time, nuclear warfare was, was uh, coming up, uh, in line. You had Pakistan and India, both with nukes. And then you had North Korea trying to make a nuke. And you had uh, Iran trying to make nukes. And so all of a sudden, now the Americans had little influence over that and had to rely upon the other countries around the world to coalesce together in order to fight those kind of concepts. Uh, so you're looking at a guy who uh, went through the Cold War and uh, we trained and when we had our military ready and we were ready to go. But then at the end, it was just not feasible for the Russians to keep up the satellite countries uh, the, uh, and, and didn't have the, uh, the finances to, and they collapsed the uh, same year that you were born. 19, uh, no, 1989. You were born in 98. So <coughs> 10 years before you were born, we had that. So here's a guy who's seen it all. And uh, I just have to say that right now, we're probably, as individuals, sitting in the best situation we could ever be in, in the best country we could ever be in, and the best, uh, uh, the best environment. Uh, and, and, and we built it up to this point. But the thing is, other countries are starting to shoot out ahead of us, like China. Russia is trying to. They're not going to make it. And uh, therefore, it makes us, it puts us in a bad position. And then we had to deal with Germany and certain, uh, Germany is coming through a lot too. They had the uh, uh, reunification of the uh, 1990s. <coughs> Dirty year. Need some water? Yeah, I, yeah, I got some here. Oh, you got some. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop talking. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I've always thought we live in a really good world. I mean, we really have it nice. And um, it always kind of surprises me when you have people who say that, you know, they're... Uh, I'm trying to word this politically correct, but um, that maybe this isn't the best time or there's still lots of things that are wrong with the world. And it's like, yeah, sure. There are a lot of things that maybe we don't do perfectly. And when I say the world, I mean really the United States, but um, I don't know when I went and lived in China for a month, I came back and I was like, yeah, we actually have it pretty good here. <laughs> it's like there, there might be a few things that are still kind of um, maybe left over from previous times. And sure, those are important, but, I think uh, if on the grand scale of things, things have gotten a lot better from where we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, 
And I think people don't really see us in context. People just see us where we are right now. And they say, oh, there's a problem. But they don't see how that problem has gotten actually better. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think this is the best time to be alive. And I wish more people saw it that way. Um, but I thought it was interesting to hear your perspective on that question. Because I've heard mixed opinions lately. Um, well, I have to say, see what my family in Germany doesn't understand. They don't understand that the Americans... You know, only that the, the education is only geared either, you know, you have a choice to speak Spanish, that they don't have second languages in elementary school. They don't understand our health system over here because over there, everybody is insured. And yeah, it's, I don't know how to explain that. And also, over there, when you're employed, you have one month paid vacation, or you get, for a Christmas bonus, you get a big Christmas bonus. From the government? No, from your employer. Also, the maternity leaves is a lot better over there. They also give you, the government gives you money for every second child. Because in Germany, you know. So let's move to Germany. Every, I think that's what we're saying. Uh, no, I have to agree <laughs> that the health system is a lot better over there. Yeah. And also, the people go, they have a choice. Because not everybody can go to college and not everybody has the smarts to go to college. So you go to a trade school. Which I think it's really cool that they acknowledge that. Like in America, they try to shove everyone in college. And if you're not, or if you don't go to college, yeah. then and over there, you, you feel like you're not smart. You go to a trade school. You are an apprentice for three years. Then you have to have your exams, you know, to pass it or not. And while you go an apprentice, you get money every month. So, you know, as a youth, you have a little bit of money to spend. And you get to learn a trade really from the nitty gritty. And you're not just trained for six or seven weeks. And I think that's why the German craftsmanship is really good. People still all over the world like to buy German-made products because they know they're most of the time good products, Yeah, right? There's actually a class I took in college, and it talked about how um, countries have perceived brand value. Like anything made in China initially seems cheap, or anything made in Germany initially seems um, high class. And so if, Japan is, when brands, is good try to well. position themselves in a market, they often consider whether or not they're going to label and promote where the product was made and designed. Yeah. And overall, I have to say, because I, you know, listen to my German radio every day, and today there was, because they also have like a voting, you know, coming up, and they said that 65% of the German people are happy with their jobs, the environment, the way the politics are, and 35 
are undecided and most of those 35% are the people that came from East Germany and are, you know, the refugees. So people basically yeah. are content. Kind of works when everyone's like-minded. With their, you <laughs> I know, guess you get life. problems when everyone... So Did I hear you say that was the last question and you're going to wrap it up? I've got some questions for you. Okay. <laughs> I think we, we, we'd miss an opportunity if we wouldn't ask you, you know, what... You're a very successful guy. We recognize that. You're the first Stryler, so you're going to, if you have baby Strylers, you're going to pass on. That's the line. That's the way we, that's the way I first looked at you. I said, wow, we finally got a boy in the family. You know, prior to that, we had uh, Summer and Karina and, and Lexi, three girls. So you're the first boy in the family. So you're the pass first the guy name. to carry on the Stryler name. Yeah. And so I said, wow, that, you know. So you've been my number one guy all along. And uh, there was a time when I thought, uh, you know, we don't have that much money in the family. Alex didn't have, I didn't have that much money at some point in time. And I said, what we have to do is kind of uh, take all of our resources and put it on that person and send him to college and send him on and, and whatever. And that person would be none other than Cole. So... <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, that was just a thought I had. But anyhow, the questions I have of you is here you are. You've, you've done practically everything you want to do up to this point in your life. You've always been out there in the front leading everybody. Now, how is it that you've been so successful? What goes on in your mind that's made you up to this point in your life? Good question. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is... I notice a lot of people who I've met in my life talk about things that they want to do that they most likely will never do and haven't done yet. And, you know, you talk to, I've talked to, I don't want to name names, but let's say couples who still have a lot of life left and they always dream about traveling the world and, um, just living these extraordinary lives, but it never becomes more than a dream. And I think I recognized that at a very young age and I made a deal with myself that that would never be me. I was never going to dream about something and then settle for something else. So I think um, really what it comes down to is not, if it's not what you want, you don't settle for it. Mm -hmm. And that was true with getting into colleges. Um, I was not going to go to a college that I didn't feel met my personal standards. And then same thing with getting a job is I was not going to accept something that I wasn't proud of. Um, and I think that'll continue. I mean, I haven't, most of the things that I want to do in life, I'm still working towards, but I think the big point here is, um, I think your success is really determined by, the level at which you're willing to settle. Yeah. And you're true to yourself. You, you Yeah. Know, you're true to yourself and you do what you love to do. Yeah. And that's made you so successful. Yeah. Because you love what you do. You know, it's not you work because you have to, but the work you do, you just love it. Yeah. And also realizing that you don't have to choose one path in life. And I think there's a lot of pressure. 
Well, I, I think most people don't realize that there are so many different ways you can live your life. I mean, I know most of my friends are going to go to college, graduate, get a job, find a girl, get married, have kids, work for 40 years, retire. And that's great, but you don't have to do that. And um, I think there are many other ways you can live your life. So um, I think being able to kind of snap out of it and snap out of the routine that typically your parents and grandparents and great grandparents have followed in the past and saying like, what do I want to do? Like what sounds interesting to me? Not like kind of ignoring the rest of the world and everyone around you. What do you want to do? And then just go out and do it. And typically um, people will say that's strange or um, it seems abnormal, but most well, cool that's things the way normal. we pegged you from the start. You you uh, you made up your mind to do something, and you would do it. Uh, and that worked with the roller skates and or the skateboard and the bicycle and everything that you undertook. Now, having said what you just said about that guidance within you, the way you approach things and how you got to be this successful in life. Okay, now the next question is. Where's that going to take you in the future? Yeah. So about six months ago, I realized that I've never had a five-year plan work out. And most of my thoughts involve things that happen in greater than five years. Meaning I spent most of my present time thinking about things that are greater than five years away and I've never had a five-year plan work out. So um, I started to, instead of trying to plan this image and path for me to follow, image of my life and path I want to follow, um, I've kind of changed my mindset to, I mean, and this is tough, but to really not think further than six months five, uh, or a year. Um, so what will I be doing in the future? I don't have a plan, but um, I can tell you that I will probably be doing something that I want to be doing. <laughs> That's my goal. So my goals change a lot. Sometimes I want to learn guitar and I spend six months learning guitar. Sometimes I, like one of my goals at some point in my life, I can almost guarantee you I will buy a Mercedes Sprinter van and live in it for like three years and work remotely. Um, all right. That just sounds interesting You're to me. on the line of material things. Now, what about <laughs> emotional things and, and love and uh, family and a wife and things like that? Have you thought about that? or I've thought about it. Um, I've Marriage is something in my mind that it either needs... Um, like it, it either needs to be perfect for that moment or non-existent. And what I mean by that is I've seen people who are getting in their thirties and they realize, man, I should probably get married at this point. And then they get married just for the sake of saying that they got married. But again, I think this is coming down to like, are you getting married because you feel like you should, because traditionally it's in our culture to get married or are you getting married because you met the person that you want to actually commit to. So, um, yes, I would like to get married, 
at some point, but it also needs to be genuine and not because I feel like I'm supposed to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I want to have a, a, at least one kid. So you're going at it uh, open-mindedly, but I have to caution you that uh, the women have it more difficult because they they are under a, a time constraint. Yes. And if they really want to have babies, they have to do it by a certain time in their life. And, and that hangs over their... That's kind of like a cloud over their head, which is not over yours. I mean, you you don't have that extra pediment there. Yeah. Uh, so you can think about it freely and, and think about it from the emotional standpoint when you fall in love. Okay, well, then you make a make a decision after that. Yeah. Now, I got another question. Well, I, I haven't answered thought. that. I haven't answered your previous question fully. So, um, I, I, so really... What I'm really striving for is time. I think not enough people get enough time. And I mean, how do you get time? Well, there's many ways to get time. You can go live home like a homeless man and you got all the time in the world. But I kind of also want some freedom. So um, the way I view my life is kind of in sections. So in my 20s, I view that as grind. Like work very hard, learn a lot, make a lot of money. And in an ideal world, I want to be done making money in my 20s. I don't know if that's going to happen. There's, I, I view it as um, there's many probabilities. There's a probability that that could happen. There's also probably a greater probability that it doesn't happen, just if you look at everyone else in the world. But um, my 30s, I want to focus on kind of exploring the world independently, like whether that's traveling um, reading lots of books, really kind of um, doing anything spontaneously that sounds interesting. And then maybe also meet, well, now I'm talking about a plan. (laughs) I'm talking about a a plan. No, I mean, really. up to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean. So during your 20s, you're closed down. You're going to focus on. I I view my uh, 20s as more of a sacrifice, which people say, go enjoy it, go enjoy it. And yeah, I agree. I try to enjoy my time, but I also like the work. I like working. Um, Really, my plan is to work hard in my 20s and then let the rest of my life kind of be random, see what happens. I do want to spend a lot of time reading, which is something I haven't had a whole lot of time to do up until this point. So that's just something that I've always thought would be really cool. Like imagine just reading a book a week for an entire year. I mean, some people do that, but I don't, but I think it'd be very cool to just commit to reading for a year. Or, um, I I really like these long runs that I've been doing. I mean, like I said, I I don't really have a plan, but (laughs) maybe I butchered that. The next question is I want to pick your brain and, and I've been wanting to ask this all along. When is the first time you remembered Oma? And, and what what situation was and what happened? Wow. And then you know the next question too. Well, <laughs> you're not going to like this answer. <laughs> I remember when I was really young, I would come here and I would go to the bathroom and I would always yell, Oma, come wipe my butt. <laughs> you were young. <laughs> and I this think is, back. And I is, t- it's funny because Milo does the same thing. He says, Oma, 
I'm going to the bathroom. And then he goes to the bathroom. <laughs> I put this little potty chair on it. And then he says, oh, my, get out and close the door. I want my privacy. <laughs> and then, like, a, min- a minute later, he yells and he says, I'm done. Or I go by and I said, I speak German to Milo. Yeah. I said, Milo, bist du fertig? And he says, ja, ich bin fertig. <laughs> <laughs> and then he sticks his little booty in my face. <laughs> That's uh, cute. All right. When did you what remember about you? your opa for the first time? <laughs> and I don't wipe butts. No. Man. You probably bought him the first ice cream. Hmm. That's hard because when you're so little, you don't remember. You don't. I remember. I remember posing for a photo with this like old gun and I remember holding it vaguely and you taking photos. That was that old Mauser, right? (laughs) Do you remember that because you saw the picture or you remember it because, well, I want to tell you something I remember about you. Uh, We were responsible to get you to school and back from school. You went down here on uh, in Oceanside, so you were pre kindergarten or something. Mary like that. Star by the Sea or oh, something. Oh, I know like what that. you're going to say, and I remember this too. So, yes. Well, you tell the story then from your standpoint. What I remember is I really didn't want to go to school. Is this correct? The, yeah, and my parents, I guess, tasked you with driving me to school, and my. I guess what was common back then is I would complain to them. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to go to school, but they would take me anyways. And I remember (laughs) I was doing that with you. And I remember, I think we were about to get on the freeway or something about to, to get to the school. And, uh, you said, all right, we're not going to school. (laughs) Well, something like that. I'll tell you my side of the story. So I said, okay, Heidi, I'm going to take him to school. So I, I had to pull you out to the car and get you into the car. I physically drag you out holding your arm. And uh, the thing I never figured out about you, I, I would always put the old the crunch on you and it never bothered you. I could never figure that out. What was the crunch? Well, you know, when you take the hand and, and you uh, and you turn it like that. And oh, it, it inward? Right here. Yes. And, and uh, you, you kind of force the wrist up into pain. That never did bother you. But anyhow, I got you to, into the car, and I pulled out into the street right here at 2718 Athens in Carlsbad. And as soon as I stopped to go forward, zip, you got out of the car. And I figured, well, how in the heck did he do that? So I, I wrestled you back into the car. And then uh, the second time around, I was pretty well, con- you convinced me that you did not want to go to school. And I, I thought, well, if I drop him off at school, he might run away. I, I said, the heck with it. We're, gonna, we're just going to stay home today. So I said, okay, go in the house. I'll come in the house. We're going to stay home today. That's the way I remember it. <laughs> your your story is probably more accurate. I don't know how Do much you remember I remember from that? that age. Oh, I remember. Yeah. I remember picking Lexi up from that little daycare and then picking up Cole. And Cole would usually sit 
there they had a sandbox and he would sit on the outside of the sandbox and the whole schoolyard was fenced in and when he saw me coming then his eyes and his whole face would just lit up and he was like oh my and then you would run over to one of the teachers and you said, my Oma is here to pick me up. <laughs> and then you would just hold my hand all the way to the car because we had to park pretty far away. And I'm like, oh, poor Cole. He doesn't like school. It sucks. It's just like Milo. Milo said, I'm so glad that, 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 that there is a pandemic, the virus, because I don't have to go to school. <laughs> He said, I don't like school. Yeah, I so just then, remember hating that place. And then I, I, I tried not. to tell him the positive things about school, you know, Ando, and you learn this and that. And he said, I can do that watching my iPad. And I'm like, there goes Cole. He reminds me a lot of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything else. Well, I don't have anything else either, but I did think of that. We were talking about this before, so I, I would be, I would want to bring it up. Um, when we did that eleven mile bike ride, <laughs> you had a different view of that, huh? Yeah, I didn't even know we had a different. So a while ago, um, came down to Carlsbad, and they don't live too far from the beach, so we, uh, well, we weren't going to the beach; we were going to the pool at the Palisades. So we got on our bikes and we rode down to the pool, swam for a couple hours, then rode to the beach, then rode home, and it ended up being an 11-mile bike ride. And, of course, I was, you know, young and fine at the time. <laughs> I didn't even realize. I mean, you were 70. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess looking back, I didn't realize how much you struggled on the bike ride because I saw <laughs> Until I told you in today, his yeah. diary today that I read that he was sore for weeks and... <laughs> <laughs> had a long recovery and that, i had no idea that was a metaphor yeah no, no. he would never admit it ray would never admit it that yeah he was not sore. to cole i'd never admit it or not to me either <laughs> i mean i remember at one point looking back thinking man is he okay I was like, yeah he's fine but i guess not <laughs> well maybe you have that challenge when you're 70 and your Ooh. grandkids will challenge you to a bike ride well i don't know gosh or racquetball we played a lot of racquetball too who knows what's happened in 50 years she well we watch you from upstairs (laughs) right all right ray will drink water and i have a glass of wine no he'll drink wine too (laughs) cool well that's it i mean Unless you guys have anything else to say, I think that covers most of my um, talking points. So I appreciate you letting me come and interview you. Yeah, we. I know can... Mike cooked a full meal during the <laughs> <laughs> during the part. I wonder if that. I bet it got picked up. That's all right. Um, well, you asked good questions, and it was yeah. enjoyable. And I learned some things from Heidi. Like what? Well, actually, I guess I heard most of that before, but... Well, the war stuff. I have a lot... I mean, I do remember a lot of... Many things from the war. Yeah. I mean, after. Yeah. But the Actually, in- her uh, uncles and 
and uh, mostly her uncles all told me about what happened to them during the war and her dad and uh, it was really interesting I was reading all about the, the World War II at the time so I was able to make a lot of those connections and mm -hmm. uh, actually I, I think when uh, I read about that part about uh, the uh, Eisenhower told his commanders including Patton and Patton told his commanders uh, make sure that the Germans who live in this area and around Malbody here, make sure that they all go in and see what happened in this massacre where the Germans actually lined up all the, the uh, Americans and shot them all at one time. Hmm. So it was kind of like, remember Malmody. In fact, Jerry Sage... But where is Malmody? I've never heard of that. ...was kind of part of that. And uh, Jerry Sage was my commander at... And he would go in and talk with the wives at the wives' club every now and then. And he had a uh, podium that he had it all rigged. And so at the end, he'd get all angry and he'd say, now, now you're married to these special forces guys. And when I call them out and I send them on a maneuver, I don't want you to ask any questions or don't, don't talk about it. Because he would send us off. We'd go into isolation and then we'd go off to another country. And so the wives wouldn't hear from us for a week or three days or five or two weeks. And they're not allowed to say anything. So at the end of his speech, he had this podium and he'd get real angry and raise his voice and start shouting. And then he'd bang his hand on the, on the podium and the podium would fall apart. I mean, it was, it was constructed that way. <laughs> and Heidi was sitting in the audience and she, was a, she came home that night and she said, well, I got a briefing by your commander and I'm not supposed to ask any questions if you go out on a maneuver. I said, oh, that's good. Well, but I think what brought this whole thing on, because you guys would go and Ray would say, well, we're going to be gone for a couple of days or for a week. And I'm like, well, where are you going? Well, I don't know. That's all a secret. Now, I had a friend, Josephine. She was also married to an American. She's actually the one that I stayed with in Kentucky. And she always knew where her husband was. She says, oh, I know where they are. And I said, well, I, Ray said it's secret. She said, nah. She said, let's go and see. I show you where they are. So we got in the car. So that was in Germany. We got in the car where she drove, and we went to the Jachenau. There is this, lake, this little river. And sure enough, you know, we kind of very quietly sneaked ourselves <laughs> And there they were. They were building bridges. So then when Ray came back, I said, well, how come Josephine know where you, you know, that you guys were building bridges? As, and Ray said, well, who, building bridges? I don't know. And I said, yeah, we saw you. You know, and so I guess, well, anyway. And then after that, after the performance from this Colonel Sage, Lord, well, her husband, uh, Josephine's husband was Jim Colby, and he was a fellow captain. So he had a team, and I had a team, a team. And well, uh, we were out training. Was a blabamos. But he wasn't supposed to tell his wife, and uh, I didn't tell Heidi. So uh, I got. So caught. I felt pretty bad <laughs> that Ray, you know, I said, you didn't, you don't trust me. So it was a trust <laughs> issue for me. <laughs> And I was following orders. My commander, Jerry Sage, said, don't, <laughs> and you, I was following. don't you tell a wife. 
but but Jim Colby squealed to his wife and then and brought, we got her involved. Yeah, that's kind of funny. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a few stories like that. Yeah. Man, oh man, this military life, <laughs> full of adventures. And then we couldn't couldn't get married right away because I they sent me off to Norway, and then uh, kept me busy all this time. And then finally we we got a break in there, and we got time to get married. So we we uh, went down to the local Landestramp in Bad Tolts and got the county records and all of that official German records. Well, it took like six months to get all the paperwork because the Americans investigated my whole family. Yeah, they my were mom, discouraging by... They were, know, yeah. They didn't want the Americans to, to marry the Germans, so they made it very difficult. Mm -hmm. Took six and, months. And then we had a, a, a Catholic uh, wedding as well at on base, uh, the Catholic chaplain of, of the uh, base did that part of it. So, it was, And then we went on a honeymoon. One and day. Then, uh, and then the next <laughs> day, day. Then I had right, to go back to work. Day, the next day. Went. We had a guy in, uh, I got to tell you this real quick. Uh, so we go into our special forces training, and when they're in the last phase of the training, when something called E&E, &E, escape and evasion. And we're down there in Lindgris, and that's where the uh, Nazi troops uh, trained in World War II. So they have it all laid out nicely, and they have cells. And so we had a cell, and they had 18 of us in a cell, and it was about as big as this right here. It was only big enough for one person, but there were 18 of us in there, stripped down naked, naked, and they threw in water, uh, and you could just try to grab as much water as you could. That, that's how you, that's all you got. You didn't get any food. So we're about three days in there, and uh, finally, on about the third day, we're supposed to try to escape. You know, that's what we're learning, escape and evasion. So uh, Wells Cunningham noticed that they left the, the lock open and he was able to open the, the, the thing. So, so we got <laughs> out and here we are running across the ice and snow is in the wintertime, November, December, and down there in Lindgris, naked and uh, uh, 18 of us running and following Wells Cunningham out in the open area, getting out away from the compound and out into the civilian area. And we finally found some clothes out there or something. And, but uh, uh, the, one I, the thing I wanted to tell you was, before we went into isolation, uh, this lieutenant was on his honeymoon. And he had one night before for the honeymoon. So when he reported in, poor guy, they said, uh, okay, now we'll, we'll, take, we'll take everything, you know, your watch and your ring and all that stuff. So he laid all that out. And uh, at that point, when he entered the door to go into isolation, which is a room where you have the uh, special forces experts on one side, and then the guy reports, this lieutenant came in. They said, now, uh, were you out with your wife last night? And uh, the guy said, yes. He broke the rule right there. You're only supposed to give name, rank, serial number. And uh, he gave more information than it. And they kicked him out of special forces. No way. He didn't even make it. So that was our training. And we were trained by the, these, these refugees that she's talking about. It came from Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, uh, all, uh, and Russia, and even some from, uh, from uh, Asia. 
those were our, our leaders, our trainers. Those were the guys that were teaching us escape and evasion because two of them, this guy Camacho, he escaped from the, the Viet, Viet Cong in Vietnam, one of the only guys that escaped, he and that other captain, and uh, he was one of the instructors. And this was in 19... So what should this guy have said? 65. So what... What should this guy have said to that question? Uh, name, rank, serial number. That's it. That's all he could give. He can't answer any questions. He, he can't answer a question like that because that would let them know that he's married and he was on his honeymoon. Gotcha. <clears throat> wow. Give away information. Come answer it on the microphone. Did they? I don't believe it. He says Trump has coronavirus. And his wife, too. <coughs> are, are you joking? Well, that's not a surprise. Um, all right. Well, again, thanks for coming on the podcast. I actually had a great time. So did I. <laughs> and uh, So did I. Maybe the other grandkids can follow up on some of the things we talked about and dive into other areas if they're interested. But, um, yeah. That would be cool. I'm yeah. glad we got to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It is so, cool. Love you guys. Love you too, love you. Cole. Thank We're you proud so of much. you. And go follow your dream and stay true to yourself. That's the most important thing. Thanks for the opportunity. We enjoyed it. Me too.